So thank you, Lord God, that I will love you with all of my heart, with all of my mind, and I will love you with all of my strength because you said I would. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you said you will love me. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I thank you, Lord God, that that is not just some law that you laid down. That is a promise. And Lord God, when I do, when I do love you with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength, I'll realize it's all a gift. Everything is a gift. And you are the ultimate gift. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to see that, that you would help us to preach. It's in your name that we preach. Amen. What is your name? Sir Galahad of Camelot. What is your quest? I seek the grail. What is your favorite color? Blue. No, yes. <laughs> Stop. What is your name? It is Arthur, King of the Britons. What is your quest? To seek the Holy Grail. What is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? What do you mean? African or European swallow? Huh? I, I don't know that. Who do you know so much about swallows? Well, you have to know these things when you're a king, you know. That's the bridge of death leading to the Holy Grail across the chasm of eternal peril. Luke chapter 13, verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem to die. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? See, that was an issue of much debate in Jesus' day. And it seems to be an issue of much debate in, in our day. Who gets saved? Who doesn't get saved? What do we need to know to find the narrow way? To pass through the narrow gate and avoid the gorge of eternal peril. What do we need to know? We need to, to know something. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive, the Greek verb is agonizomai, it's where we get our word agonize. Agonize to enter through the narrow door. For many, many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. In Matthew, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus puts it this way, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And that leads to some rather obvious questions. Like how many is many? And how few is few? And how narrow is this gate? And how few find it? And how narrow is this narrow door? What is that door? Good question. You may remember that when Adam and Eve were kicked out of paradise for taking fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God placed a chair, the cherubim 
the cherubim, two, two of them, and a flaming sword at the eastern entrance to the Garden of Eden, like a sentry, a gate, or, or a door. You may also remember that when Joshua and the children of Israel entered the Holy Land from the east, they encountered this God-man with a drawn sword, like a sentry, a gate, or or a door, and you may also remember the cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the sanctuary, and a veil, a veil that functioned as a door leading into the holy place. In the Revelation, there are 12 doors surrounding the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God. Well, well if you were a Jew in Jesus' day, you would assume that the narrow door is the law. And in some way, it must be the law. In fact, in Matthew, when Jesus says this bit about the gate and the way, he's just expounded the law, saying, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In Ezekiel, or in, no, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, God gives Israel the law, and he tells them that if they obey the law, they will enter. In Deuteronomy, the law is summed up with this statement, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. The language is a little different, so when Jesus does it, he says, mind, soul, and, and strength. You will love the Lord your God with everything you got. In chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, the Lord tells them that if they obey his commandments, they will be blessed and enter the land. But if they don't, they will be cursed exiled and destroyed from the land, lost from the land. In chapter 30, he says, choose life. And in chapter 31, he says, but you won't. <laughs> As you know, they all die in the wilderness, right? Have you ever thought about that? God makes these incredible promises. They all die in the wilderness, except Joshua and, and Caleb. In the last chapter of Joshua, Joshua says, Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The people say, we also will serve the Lord. And Joshua says, you are not able. People sometimes say, God will never tell you to do what you're not able to do. Well, it seems to me that pretty much like the whole Old Testament is a story of God telling people to do what they're not able to do. At least, at least not yet, except for Joshua. And just who does this Joshua think he is? As for me and my house, we, we will serve the Lord. Well, the only way you could join Joshua's house is if you were, like, adopted or married to Joshua. And that's not simply your choice. First and foremost, that has to be Joshua's choice, Joshua's choice, his choice. And, and that's not only true for Israel in the Old Testament. Right here in our story, Jesus, which, by the way, is just the anglicized version of the Hebrew name Joshua. Joshua, Jesus says, agonized to enter through the narrow door. And then to the very same people will soon read these words. He says, you will stand outside and the master will say to you, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So he says, try to enter. And then it seems like he says, and you won't be able. Well, if any man other than Jesus obeyed the law, that was the apostle Paul, right? Rabbi Saul. Philippians 3, 6, he writes that as to the law, he was blameless. But then in 1 Timothy 1, 6, he writes that he is the chief, the foremost of sinners. 
Romans 3.20, he writes that no human being will be justified, that means made right in God's sight by works of the law. So if the law is a door, it just reveals the truth that we cannot justify ourselves. It reveals that we are like dead in our trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of our flesh. So then we can't find the way because we're dead. We can't fit through the door because we just like have too much flesh. Remember what Jesus said to the rich young ruler who claimed to have obeyed all the commandments and yet wouldn't follow Jesus? He said, um, it's harder for a rich man, this rich young ruler, harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle. <laughs> Maybe the narrow door is about as wide as the eye of a needle. And maybe the things a rich young ruler needed to lose were not only physical possessions, but like psychic possessions. His psyche in Greek, his, his life. As, as we noted, you can get a rich young ruler through the eye of a needle. It's just very hard on the rich young ruler. Because <laughs> he has to lose his psyche, his, his life. He must lose his life to find it. Well. Paul, you know, had been a rich young ruler, and he wrote, no one will be made right by works of the law. You remember that just like baffled the disciples when Jesus said the rich young ruler, that's not, that's not good enough. They, they said, who then can, can be saved? No one will be made right by works of the law. The law reveals that you're wrong, but it can't make you right. And, and you all know this, right? The law describes love, but it's not love. And by law, I don't just mean Old Testament law. I mean any law, precept or um, concept or principle or ordinance or value. I mean, aren't they all attempts to describe love and then legislate love? And so they all reveal that we don't love because if we loved, we wouldn't need them. If you need a law to tell you to speak truth, it reveals that you don't love the truth. If you need a law to tell you to love, it reveals that you don't love love. Instead what? Instead, you want the knowledge of love so you can act like you love. Act like you love and thereby use love to get what you want, which is not love. <laughs> You actually hate love and, and use love to act like you love. The law reveals we don't love and makes us compete at acting like we do love, right? I mean, you've hung a lot around religious folks, right? Com competing at love. We compete at love. Love is sacrificing self to save another. Competition is sacrificing another to save the self. Competition is the way of all flesh. It's the survival of the fittest. I mean, that's a reality. It's flesh. That's the way flesh is. It's the way of all flesh. So the law makes men of flesh compete at love, <laughs> which means we act like we want another's best when we secretly want another's worst, right? We, we act like we make ourselves last so others can be first, all in an effort to make ourselves first 
and others last. We become actors, hypocritas in Greek, hypocrites, actors, whitewashed tomb, the, the walking dead, walking around, unrighteous, acting all righteous with unrighteousness, dead in our trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of our flesh, the uncut-offedness of our flesh. You know, the Lord said, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And when he found him hiding in fig leaves and trees, he issued a curse saying, you are dust, and to dust you will return. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. You know, if Jesus undoes the curse, would he do so by making God a liar? So the day you eat of it, you will die. <laughs> So are we dead or not? And, and what day is it? I mean, those are questions worth pondering, right? Well, if the door, but this much is clear, if the door is the law, well, then how many seek to enter and aren't able to enter? I mean, that question is becoming more clear, right? How many seek to enter and aren't able to enter? If the door is the law, how many seek to be good and can't make themselves good? How many try to get into heaven but don't know what it is? or where to find it. Language scholars point out that in the New Testament, many often means all. And here it seems uh, to mean all. So how narrow is the door and how few find it? Maybe it's so narrow it would, well, it would kill us to enter. And the few that find it is like one, only one. Only one has found it and fit through it. Only one has fulfilled the law. Only one is righteous, and that's Jesus. And maybe one day, his house. And yet he says to all of us, he says, agonize, agonize to enter the narrow door. Well, maybe it would do us some good to back up and read this whole thing in context. You know, he said these things in Matthew at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where he expounds the law. But in Luke, he says them right after two parables of the kingdom, which we studied a few weeks ago, but are in a different place in the Gospel of Luke than in the Gospel of Matthew. Luke 13, 18, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. If the kingdom is like that, maybe the door to the kingdom is like that. Something very small that leads to something incredibly big. You know, in the Chronicles of Narnia, the children enter Narnia through a wardrobe door, and only the children can enter. When their sister Susan grows larger and gets a bigger psyche, when she's grown up, she can no longer enter through the narrow door. At the end of the books, they leave old Narnia, they go to new Narnia through a stable door. Dickory says this about, about the stable. Its inside is bigger than its outside. And Lucy responds, yes. In our world, too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. In the book, Alice in Wonderland, looking for a party, Alice follows a rabbit, falling down a hole past all sorts of biblical metaphors, and she lands in front of a door, a door that's not impossible, it's impassable, for she's large, and the door is small, 
like the size of the eye of a needle. Not impossible, but impassable in, in, in her current state. Well, Alice drinks from a cup labeled drink me, and she shrinks. And then she eats a wafer labeled eat me, and she grows. And then the door says to her, drink from the cup again, and she shrinks. Big in one way, small in another, kind of like, you know, a toddler in his father's eyes. Very big and very small all at the same time. She shrinks, and then she passes through the door into Wonderland. Maybe we all need to shrink to pass into wonderland. Verse 20, and again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. The door is small and hard to find, but maybe it's like everywhere, like, like leaven. At one point in the Chronicles of Narnia, Lucy says to Aslan, oh, Aslan, would you tell us how to get into your country from our world? And do you remember what Aslan says to Lucy? I will be telling you all the time. All the time. Well, Jesus tells him about the mustard seed and the leaven. Next verse, our vet, verse. He, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? I'm not so sure that Jesus really likes this question or the energy behind this question. Perhaps this guy wants to be first and make others last. Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus said to them, he said to them, agonize to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen, and that's kind of an interesting phrase because Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die, and now we know that he's risen. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, like he's the judgment or something, once he's risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. We went to Sunday school. We read all the books, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of unrighteousness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In that place. Where is that place? That place is right where they are, right? They're already there. He shut the door. That's where they are. I mean, do you ever think, what the hell is wrong with this world? Well, maybe that's your answer. Hell is wrong with this world. In one sense, that's bad news. And yeah, in another sense, that's very, 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 very good news. Like Chesterton wrote, when I was told that I was in the right place, I felt depressed, even in acquiescence. But when I heard that I was in the wrong place, my soul sang for joy like a bird in spring. Last time I titled the sermon, Heaven and How to Find It. This time I titled it, Hell and How to Stay There. According to scripture, heaven begins here. But hell has already begun here. That's why there is weeping and gnashing of teeth here. And I'm not saying that it won't get much worse because I believe it will, but I hope you see that we may be far more acclimated to hell than we are to heaven. In fact, it may be the sight of heaven that elicits the greatest fear in those that are in hell. 
in that place, verse 28, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come, people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, look, there are last who will be first and first who will be last. Well, weeping and gnashing of teeth, I mean, that's... That's where they're terrifying. And for years, this text bothered me, this narrow door and our ability to find it and enter it, and the fact that the master of the house doesn't know who these people are or where they are from. I mean, how could God the Father or God the Son not know who they are or where they're from? He knows everything that's anything. He's the source of all things, and he doesn't know where they're from. Yet he knows that their works are unrighteousness. And he keeps saying it. I, I, I don't know where you're from. I don't know where you're from. I don't know where you're from. One day I was reading this and I thought to myself, hey, why don't they just tell him where they're from? I mean, maybe the door is truth. Not truth out there like the knowledge of good and evil hanging on some tree or something like the law, but truth in here, truth that I've ingested. Remember how Adam and Eve hid themselves in fig leaves and trees when God came walking in the garden? They had a hard time dealing with truth, right? And they acted like they weren't guilty. They made excuses, they obfuscated. I mean, it was agony for them to be naked before their creator. And Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he picks up a little child and he says, you must become like this little child to enter the kingdom of heaven. The little children don't have a problem being naked. I'm a father of four, and I remember when they were little, they didn't seem to have much problem with that. And they're not very good actors. They're good at playing, but not acting, not acting, because little children tend to tell the truth, and they don't know how to lie, at least not well. They don't know how to lie. Have you seen that, that book, Children's Letters to God? I, I love these letters. These are three of my favorite. Here's one. Dear God, I bet it is very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in our family, and I can never do it. <laughs> Nan. <clears throat> Dear God, if we come back as something, please don't let me be Jennifer Horton because I hate her, uh, Denise. I mean, we all think stuff like that, right? But we know that we aren't supposed to say stuff like that. This is a pretty good one too. Dear God, instead of letting people die and having to make new ones, why don't you just keep the ones you got now? <laughs> Jane, children are bad actors. And maybe what we call growing up is learning to become a good actor, and maybe that act turns into hell. You know, when my daughter was about four, she used to love to pretend and play, and she especially used to love to play ponies. So I'd come home from work, and she'd want to play ponies, which meant we'd get on all fours, and she'd say, let's go to the meadow. And then we'd crawl on all fours to the bathroom and pretend to eat grass. And then she'd say, let's go back to the barn. And then we'd crawl on all fours back to the bedroom. And then she'd say, let's go to the meadow and eat grass. And then we'd crawl back to the meadow and eat grass. I mean, it was just exhausting, just exhausting. And so 
I'd just lie down, you know, and try to take a nap. And Becky would yell at me. She'd say, stop it, Daddy. Ponies don't take naps. Don't take, get up. Get to work. Well, one day, Becky said to me, Daddy, 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 let's play, let's play. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, Lord, please don't let it be ponies. She said, Daddy, Daddy, let's, let's play. I know, let's play, let, let's play that, that you be the big daddy and I'll be the little girl. And I looked at her and I said, great! Because I knew that daddies take naps, right? I said, I said, great! And so, I don't know, I took a nap. We went on with life as, as usual. Several hours later, I went to the mailbox and Becky wanted to come with me. We were just walking and talking when, when Becky stopped me in the middle of the street. And I remember she looked at me with those big eyes and she said, Daddy, I'm tired of playing this game. Could we stop playing this game? And it took me a while to figure out what she was saying. And then I said, oh, sure, Becky. Instead of pretending to be your daddy, I'll just be your daddy. And instead of you pretending to be my little girl, you just be my little girl. And I remember this look of relief just washed over Becky's face. She was free. And once again, she was just her happy, bubbly little self. But all afternoon, she had been impersonating herself. Posing, posturing, trying to be herself, enslaved to her own image of herself. And I remember thinking, wow, I think I like do that all the time. And I'm not even aware of it most of the time. I pretend to be good, and so I'm not good. I'm miserable. One day when my daughter Elizabeth was about nine, and she was a better actor by this age than Becky was at four, she was learning, I came home and Susan said, Peter, you need to talk to Elizabeth. She was playing downstairs with the kids and her friend Katie from next door, and she called, she called Katie a poop head, but she didn't use the authorized poop word. She, she used the unauthorized uh, potty word, and now I'm going to switch to biblical Greek because the Greek word is skubalon, okay? But Susan said she was downstairs, and I was listening. She started yelling at Katie, and she said, Katie, you're a skubalon head, skubalon head, skubalon. She just yelled it over and over and over, and everybody heard, and you need to talk to her. And so I found Elizabeth, my little hot-headed buddy, and I said, honey, do you have something that you need to tell daddy? And she said, no, daddy, everything's just fine. And she smiled. And I said, did you call Katie a scubalon head? And she said, oh, no, daddy, I'd, I'd never say that. And I said, well, that's funny, because mom, John, and Becky, they all said that you said that. So I just, I mean, I laid down the law, and she denied her guilt. She denied her sin, and she did it quite convincingly, and that, terrified me. She was becoming a great actress. And now her heart was hidden from me, invisible. You remember Smeagol in The Lord of the Rings? He acquires the ring of power that makes him invisible. Then trapped alone in his own darkness, he becomes Gollum. Gollum comes from the Hebrew legend of the Golem about a rabbi who brought to life this clay figure of a man using the name of God which he had stolen from its proper place. Lying 
bending the truth, taking the truth, manipulating the truth. Lying is like the ring of power. It's like stealing the word of God in an effort to create yourself. But you only desecrate yourself, uncreate yourself, and make yourself invisible. I looked at Elizabeth, and I remember thinking, I don't know who you are. I don't know where you're from. And it terrified me. And this is the crazy thing. I really didn't care that Elizabeth called Katie a scoobalon head. I mean, I thought it was actually kind of cute and funny. But the fact that she was hiding her heart from me terrified me. It was as if she was lost in outer darkness. And now I was lost in outer darkness as well. And so I laid down the law. I did. I laid down the law, and I made Elizabeth suffer. And then I took her to McDonald's and was kind. I bought her some pancakes. I looked her in the eye. And then she cracked. She sobbed. I mean, it was agony for Elizabeth, but she cried out, Daddy, I did call Katie a scuba on head. And suddenly I knew who she was. And I knew where she was coming from. And I hugged her and we threw that old golem into Mount Doom, Mount Doom where, where he was consumed by fire, the fire of my love. The golem was a lie and the product of a lie. What does Jesus the truth not know? How about a lie? The master says to those at the door, literally, I do not know whence you are. Well, when Elizabeth confessed, I was just so relieved. I, I thought, there you are. You were lost, and now you're found. So let's have a party. Happy meals for everyone. Party. Well, the older we get, the better we become at acting. And even more scary, the more we believe our own act. We think we're good because we're good at acting good. So maybe entering through the narrow door of truth looks something like this. Th this is Robert Downey Jr. playing the great method actor, Kirk Lazarus, in the wonderful movie, Tropic Thunder. It's about a bunch of actors who think they're in a movie that turns out to be reality, and the reality exposes their act. Who are you? Me? I know who I am. I'm a dude playing a dude disguised as another dude. What? You a dude that don't know what dude he is. Or are you a dude who has no idea what dude he is and claims to know what dude he is by playing other dudes? I know what dude I am! You're scared. I ain't scared. Scared of what? You're scared of who? Scared of who? Scared of you. Jesus. What's going on? The dudes are emerging. These rats, you know. feel like a dude playing another dude disguised as another dude and then you think I don't even know who I am 
Well, maybe your father is I am that I am. And he knows who you am. And he really likes who you am. But he does not like who you ain't. God makes you in his image with his word. And we desecrate that image believing a lie. God creates you with his judgment, and we create a false self with our judgment, one of the walking dead trapped in outer darkness, a golem. We think that's who we are. And we try to convince ourselves it's, it's good. Our judgment is sin, and it creates the walking dead. The master says, I know not where you're from. I know not where you're from. Where are you coming from? I know not where you're from. Why don't they just tell him, I come from calling Katie a shithead because she made me feel like I was last and she was first, and now I want her to feel last so that I can be first. Daddy, that's where I'm coming from. Why don't they tell him? I come from a dark place of loneliness and fear because I'm a pastor who's supposed to know the good and love the good and be good, and I can't make myself good. Why don't they tell him? I come from pornography and lust because for a moment I can forget about me and lose myself in beauty and feel potent once again. Why don't they tell him I come from a three-day drinking binge because I want to die, hoping that I might live. I mean, why don't they tell him I come from shopping, shopping, shopping? I come from shopping because I'm scared that I'll have nothing and become nothing. I come from gossip and slander and taking life from others, trying to make their life my own life, like some kind of zombie or vampire. I come from talking with the snake and taking fruit from the tree. And nailing Jesus, the Lord of love, to that very same tree because, God, I seek your heaven, but I don't seek you. I only use you. I want to take your life like fruit from a tree, eat your flesh, drink your blood, steal your kingdom, and now I know that's the very opposite of your kingdom. Master of the house, that's where I'm coming from. Help me. Why don't they say that? Well, we all know why they don't say that. Because that would be the end of the act. That would be the end and the destruction of their golem that they think they are, and so they choose to remain in outer darkness, safe as hell. One of my favorite quotes comes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He writes this. In the confession of concrete sins, the old man dies a painful, shameful death before the eyes of a brother. Because this humiliation is so hard, we continually scheme to avoid it. Yet in the deep mental and physical pain of humiliation before a brother, we experience our rescue and our salvation. You know, Jesus revealed that every gate in the New Jerusalem is a pearl. And like we talked about a few weeks ago, those pearls are us, the people of God. Every pearl, you know, is a wound surrounded by treasure that is the grace of God. God is grace. So in every sinner that believes the gospel, there's a door. And the kingdom and its king are on the other side of that door. So confess where you've been to someone that has become a pearl. 
That is another sinner who believes. Don't cast your pearls before swine, but, but, but confess them to another sinner who believes. See, that's what a program like AA is all about, confessing your sins to other sinners. Well, Bonhoeffer is saying that when you confess your sins to a believer, you die a bit and begin to live a little bit more in the kingdom of heaven. It's agony. And then the world opens up and it's time to party. So maybe the door is truth. And it's like leaven. It's just everywhere. And maybe the door is death, because it kills you. you. You know, the mustard seed must die in order to live. Confession is a type of death. It kills the prideful, lonely, old, sinful you hiding in fig leaves in shame. It kills you, or, or it cuts you down to size, the size of the thing that's doing the confessing. And I think that thing is called faith. Elizabeth confessed to me because she had just a little bit of faith in me that came from me, and that was the Elizabeth I knew. Jesus said, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you know, I bet a mustard seed would fit through the eye of a needle. And where do we get that faith? Ephesians, Paul, the old rich young ruler, prays that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith. So faith in us is Christ himself in us, even if he's just the size of a seed. John 12, Jesus says this. Um, um, the hour has come. can't read my own handwriting. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground it, it, it re and dies, it, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his psyche, his life, loses it. Well, maybe Jesus helps us lose our psyche, helps us lose our lives so we can find them. He causes us to make the right confession. When he died, he delivered up his spirit, the spirit that descends upon us, crying, Abba, Father. You know, God said, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. That was the sixth day. And the cross, the tree on which Jesus is crucified, is the edge of the seventh day, where it is finished, and everything, everything, everything passes through that door and becomes very, very, very good. If we are joined with him in a death like his, wrote Paul, we will surely be joined with him in a resurrection like his. Do you see? Jesus doesn't free us from the curse by making God a liar. Jesus frees us from the curse by helping us die, by giving us faith to die. By giving us faith to look up to heaven and say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. A Christian is someone who dies before they die. A ghost in Hades is someone who's died, but their psyche has not died. And so they weep and gnash their teeth in outer darkness, dead but terrified to die. Dead, but terrified of the narrow door. The door is the death of death. The second death. The death of death. That's life. That's life. Jesus said this, whoever hears my words and believes has 
eternal life. Do you get that? Whoever hears my words and believes has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. Maybe he's passed through it. But he has passed from death to life. That is, he was dead, and when he believed, he died. He died to death. Death died. Faith is dying to death, and that's life, and Jesus is the life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 10, 9, I am the door. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He's, he's the door. You know, if you can find the way and enter the door, you don't need to be saved. But Jesus is the Savior who comes to seek and to save the lost, the destroyed, that's who he is. You, you don't find him. He, he finds you. He said the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction or lostness. Those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The many is, is all, all who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the few is one, and, and his name is Jesus. He fulfilled the law, right? He fulfilled the law, and he made himself the door. To put it in theological language, he fulfilled the old covenant and he cut, he, he, he um, validated the, the new covenant, yet the new covenant is older than the old covenant. Did you know that? Long before God instituted the covenant of law, he promised Abraham that although his descendants would rebel, he would lead them into the land. That's the covenant of grace. They would enter the promised land, but not by crossing a river and fighting a war, but by passing through a door. The door is narrow as a manger, and then it rips open on a cross, this incredible tree. And the land isn't just real estate in the Middle East. The land is communion with the living God. Heaven is God. Jesus says, I tell you, many will seek to enter, and all, you know, do seek to enter. They seek to enter heaven, or what they think of as heaven. They seek to enter heaven, but don't know that heaven is God. Like Paul writes, no one is righteous, no one seeks for God. Yet Jesus says, strive to enter, agonize to enter. I, I think that means try to fulfill the whole law, and then you'll see that you can't fulfill the law, and then you'll be offended by that truth, and then crucify the truth, and then see the truth that I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And even though you take my life, I give my life, I'm the revelation of love. The law is a description of love, but I am love, and I fulfill the law in you. I make make you my house. I make you my body. I make you my bride. I am the heart of God in you, faith, hope, and love rising in the dead soil that is you. I am the resurrection and the life, and I am your righteousness. You know, I think we all assume that God is asking us to change our desires, right? Righteousness is having the right desire. I think all of us assume that God is asking us to change our desires. That's why we argue so much about homosexuality, debating, well, is that a choice or is that not a choice, and can we change it or can we not change it? But in the very same passage that Paul mentions homosexuality, he talks about greed. You know, greed is making yourself first and making others last. 
You can act like you've changed that desire, but you've probably only increased that desire if you thought you changed that desire, substituting spiritual greed for physical greed, happy to inherit the kingdom of heaven while other people rot in hell. And maybe that's why we're so concerned about how many will be saved. Do I get in? Do they get in? I, I can't let them get in. Greed. Well, we all assume that God is asking us to change our desires. But maybe we can't change our desires. By God's grace, maybe we can only confess our bad desires. And he must give us a new desire. I think he is that desire. He is love. God is love. So the commandment truly is a promise, not just a threat. Jesus says you will love, not should love. You will love. He is love given to us, and so he can say it. You, you will love. And, and what does love desire? What desire is that? Well, love desires to be last and make everyone else first. Whew. Remember what the man asked Jesus? Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus answered him. He said, people will come from east and west, north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. That is a party. They will recline at table with king, in the kingdom of God with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Matthew 8, he calls those people many. He's drawing on Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 4. All the nations will flow into the houses of the Lord. Isaiah 25, the Lord will make a feast for all people and swallow up death forever. And yet Jesus does say that this man who asked the question and his buddies will weep and gnash their teeth in outer darkness. Like the older brother, outside the party being thrown for his younger brother, the prodigal's son, weeping and gnashing his teeth in outer darkness. In Matthew, Jesus refers to these folks in outer darkness as sons of the kingdom. Israelites sons of the kingdom. And so they too will eventually be saved. Ezekiel prophesies that the whole house of Israel will be raised from the graves, that, that the Son of Man will breathe breath into the dry bones. They will rise from the graves and they will enter the land. But it's not because they find the door. It's because the door, the breath of God has found them. They have been humbled by God's love for Samaritans and Sodomites. You can read about that in Ezekiel 16. He's going to resurrect Samaria and, and Sodom. They're humbled by grace so they can at last believe grace. They don't find the door. The door finds them. Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, we have trouble hearing his voice. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him eat with him, and he with me. And do you see what that means? It means the promised land, the Garden of Eden, the sanctuary, the kingdom of heaven is within you. So Jesus seeks, and Jesus finds you, his sanctuary, his house, his bride, his heaven. King Arthur spent all that time looking for the Holy Grail, and he is the Holy Grail, the Bride of Christ. And so Jesus, the great bridegroom, 
He said, strive to enter by the narrow door. And he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, the cup, saying, this cup is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. This fulfills the law. This is the truth. This is where you die with Jesus, and this is where you rise with Jesus. This is the love of God come for you. This is the narrow door. And he has a question for you. Where are you coming from? Why don't, why don't you just tell him right now? Close your eyes and just tell him. Tell him where, where you're coming from. If, if you don't know, tell him that. Just, just tell him where at least you think you're, you're coming from. Where are you coming from? Are, are you afraid to tell him? Well, then look. Now you can look. Look, look. Are you afraid to tell him? Look. He, he, he's already forgiven you. From the foundation of the world, he's forgiven you. So have faith. And tell him. Enter through the narrow door. And you can begin to party. Even here. Even now. Dark cup is wine. Light cup is juice. They both fulfill the law. They are the truth. They're the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. They're, they're life. They're Jesus. They're his life, his grace given to you. Let's worship. So you're tired of playing this game? Tired of hell? Well, then listen to the truth. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. You are the children of God, the bride of Christ, and the house of the Holy Spirit. Believe the gospel, and things will change. They begin to change here, and then it's everywhere. Amen? Hey, and let me just say this. If you, if you would like to be a part of a group, a small group, talk to Kathleen. I mean, really the reason we have those pretty much in my mind is just so you have other people that believe this stuff that you can confess to, who then can turn around to you and say, in the name of Jesus, you're forgiven. When I was in seminary, I took a class on alcoholism, and I had to go to AA meetings. And I love beer, but I'm, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. But I loved AA meetings because they all started with people saying, this is my name, and I'm an alcoholic. And then it felt, it just was, it felt like a, a party. I remember thinking, gosh, I, I miss AA meetings, you know, because people are so authentic there. And, and you see, I think that's what the church is supposed to be, where we come to a place and we say, look, I just have to confess, I'm a sinner. But I'm, but, and then hear someone say, well, you're forgiven, and God is the Savior. And, and I know people think, well, that's unsafe. If you just do that, that's unsafe. Well, here's a fascinating thing. 
I learned that the only effective program, according to most counselors, against alcoholism is AA. <laughs> and basically all that is is confession and then believing good news. And so may you confess your sins one to another. May you be a door for the people around you. In other words, may you be the church, the new Jerusalem coming down. It's good news. In his name, amen.